Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hello, dear listener. Welcome to Owning It, the Anxiety Podcast with me, Caroline Ford. For this episode, I'm joined by the most incredibly inspiring woman. I was just hanging on her every single word. Her name is Gladys McGarry. She's 102 years old. She recently published a book called The Well-Lived Life, and she has quite the story to tell. We talk about anxiety today versus what she knew of it when she was starting out as a physician, her own experience of anxiety through her separation, carving out a space for herself in a very male-dominated profession, being judged, being taken seriously, and a rare encounter with Mahatma Gandhi. She shares a lot of sage advice and she is just a wonderful storyteller. I hope you will enjoy this chat and take something from it. I know I did. And don't forget to sign up to Owning It Real Time, which you can access at the link in the show notes and learn to manage your anxiety in the moment that it's happening for you from right now. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to join me. I'm so honored and this is probably the most nervous I've ever been. And I've done so many podcasts because <laughs> you are such an incredibly accomplished woman. And I'm just, I'm so blown away by your life, your all that you've achieved. Thank you. Thank you. I mean, I think the name McGarry comes from uh, Ireland. It's either Ireland or Scotland. I don't know which, but. <laughs> it definitely sounds like there is an Irish link there. Yeah. There's so many things that I want to ask you about. Um, I was sharing on Instagram that I was meeting with you and everyone was had so many questions. Because um, I think a question that comes up so often is, you know, what would we tell ourselves, our younger selves, or how will we feel about this when we're a certain age? And just for, for context, my podcast and my books and everything I do is very much geared around people struggling with anxiety. Something I get asked quite often, and I think there's no better person to answer than you. Why do you think that anxiety is so 
widely experienced these days? Do you think it's a case of we're feeling it more or do you think we're just talking about it more? No, I think I think that the world is afraid. I mean, the people of the world are afraid. I think when COVID hit, it just knocked everything out of out of kilter and people didn't know where to place anything. And we still are looking for how we reacclimate ourselves to where we are right now, because it was pre-COVID and after COVID. It was like when World War II started and I started medical school and when World War II started and ended when it went, you know, so there is a whole difference in the way the world was before the war and after the war. And I think it's the same thing right now. But right. I think we're working on it. I think people like you are bringing this up to so, so, so that we, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of like cleaning your closet. You drag out the stuff and look at it and decide what needs to be thrown away. But until you pull it out and look at it, it's, you don't know that it's there. Absolutely. You mentioned there about when you started um, your your medical training and it was coming into the war. And I guess at that time, we didn't have the language that we have now around mental health to say you're suffering with anxiety. And I know that you are such an advocate of if someone presents with a physical ailment, looking at the full picture and, you know, what's right. going on in their life. Back then, when you were treating people, was the word anxiety ever, did it ever even come up? And Or were you oh, able yes. to tell that it was, it was part of what people were struggling with? Oh, yes, yes. Like, like for instance, well, this was after the war. You know, while I was practicing medicine, helping mothers have their babies and all that kind of thing, one mother had five babies, daughters that I had helped birth. And the fifth daughter was one who would, no, Totally. This is this. Uh, the reason I'm telling you this is, this is the kind of things that create anxiety in women, which just is hard to deal with. But this mother, who I had been working with for years, with the other five, with the other four daughters, her fifth daughter would not at at two and a half would not sit with the rest of the family at the table. She sat under the table with the dog. Wow. Now, you know, that kind of anxiety to a mother who has raised four other daughters who are, she was just beside herself, you know, wondering what is, what's wrong with this child? What can I do? How can I change her? Well, the only thing that we could come up with, the two of us working on it together, was let her grow out of it. Yeah. Because she and that dog had kind of bonded to the point where they were under the table people. And, <laughs> you know, it's that kind of anxiety that uh, is so, um, it's sneaky. It creeps in. And this mother was just totally devastated. The other four daughters were fine. But what's wrong with this child? Yeah, there's there's no anxiety quite like the worry about your your children if, if they're ever unhappy or um not at ease. Um and I guess back then was I mean it's only probably in the last few years that I feel like 
people are using words like anxiety. Like I remember even when I was a kid, I was described as having a nervous tummy or my parents' generation would be saying, oh, she suffers with her nerves, you know, for their kind of peers. When did you start to see it coming into, I guess, our daily vocabulary that it was something that we took seriously and not just something you would medicate with having a drink? It depends on who you are, Mm -hmm. you know, because there's still people that think that that's the way to deal with it. There's still doctors who feel that needs to be medicated. So because you have picked up this, this issue and are working with it, and people around the world are being drawn to you for answers is because of the, the trajectory that you as a person took. You see, the thing that I'm so excited about <laughs> is that each one of us has our own place in this world that is can't be taken by anybody else. Mm-hmm. Like a big jigsaw puzzle, you know, there's one place that is my place in that jigsaw puzzle and your place, and no one else can t- take it. But if we don't take it, if we get so tied up in our own pain and suffering that we can't see or that we're not even looking for anything else, then what's going to happen? And and then the anxiety builds. And then, you know, it's, it's only when we begin to see for ourselves that this is an issue and it needs to be dealt with that it really becomes something that you can deal with. Mm. Because, you know, the neighbor down the street must may be just suffering with severe anxiety, and you don't know anything about it. Yeah. Because she hasn't shared it with you. So yeah. it's this business of, of um, being able to understand each other and help each other wherever we can. Mm-hmm. Tell me about your own experience with, I mean, I want to get into your your incredible life story, but has anxiety been something you have felt at different times? Is it Was there ever a point where it was quite prominent for you and you had to figure out ways to manage it? <laughs> oh, which one will I take? <laughs> <laughs> take your pick. No. Yeah, yeah, no. Uh, yes, there have been some very, very difficult times, like when after 46 years of marriage and six children and all the work that we had done together, my husband suddenly asks for a divorce wow. and threw me into outer space. I mean, really, I wasn't expecting it and all of that. And so this one time I was really so devastated with it and I was still practicing medicine. I was still working with patients, but I was driving home to my empty house and I was really crying and I was yelling at God and I was saying, you just don't understand what it's like on this plane now. I mean, you know, I was having a conversation that was really, um, really from my heart. No, I was in the car by myself. Nobody could hear me so I could do this. And suddenly I pulled off to the side of the street and I turned the engine off and I was just sitting there. And in my mind came the 
the verse, this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And I said, okay, I get it. And so I made my car license plate be glad. That yeah. was what I had on the, so that the rest of the time I was in Arizona, I mean, in Phoenix, uh, practicing medicine was driving this car around that said to people that could read it would see, be glad. So it was taking, it's taking the moment when we are really sometimes at the deepest point of our pain and being able to look up and, and see something Someone, something, some word, some light, something that gives us some help and throws it down because we're looking for it. But if we're not looking for it, we're not going to see it. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like gratitude has been a big part of oh, your life. Huge. And that in itself, would you say, is like a, a tool for? Right, anxiety, or I guess surrendering to the moment, or getting to a point of acceptance. How? I mean, a lot of people listening are probably going through a separation now, or have been through it, and it's very hard to see a point where you'll ever be feel whole again. What would you say to yourself now, on that day that your husband turned around to you and said, "I'm done." Uh, well, it took me a long time, even after that one point at which I said to myself and my car and my world that I'm glad. Mm. It took me years to get to the point where one night I woke up having had some kind of a dream. And this is years later. Um, and I began to go over in my mind the things that I was so that so happy about, which Bill, my husband, and I had done together, the work that we had done, the children we had had, the things that, that I had, as I call memory lane, go down that lane, or I could continue to suffer with what I was missing and what he had done to me. Okay, it took me a long time. I I had to start at that point, but I, you know, and I finally realized that whatever it was, you know, it was really, really bad and so on. But my choice at that moment, which was years later, was which way I was going to continue to live whether I was going to continue to live with the pain and suffering while I was doing all of this other work too, which was really pulling me out of that, or I was going to make the choice, which we all have, of putting my energy into what we had done together with the work we had had, the children we had had, and then realize that, okay, that's wonderful. That's what I'm going to work with. Now, Bill took a vacation, and I have nothing to do with that. And so it was letting it go, letting actually letting the pain 
go mm. and be done with it. Did you believe you would get to a point where you would be okay again? Oh, absolutely. In fact, um, our 4th of July, which was two days ago, mm-hmm. we had our 4th of July, which is Independence Day in, our, in, in the United States. I moved into this little casita, which I had, after all of this had done, I had built this on the back of my daughter in the backyard, my daughter's backyard. She and I were partners in the in the practice that we were of medicine. And then I had this casita built here. And two days ago, my son John and I celebrated Independence Day because on Independence Day 30 years prior, I had moved into this house. Wow. So the the reason I'm telling you this, and, and so we lit a candle and we had a piece of cake and all of that just b- between the two of us to celebrate the fact that 30 years ago, I had accepted Independence Day as a t- time when I was actually accla- just claiming my independence. But, it, you know... Life is so amazing. We take steps and we grow into something. Or we try to get over it, which I think is foolish. You don't get over anxiety. You don't get over the pain. You grow through it. Mm -hmm. And when you grow through it, you can let it go. It's no longer painful. As long as you're picking a scab on your arm, it won't heal and it'll hurt. But when you let it heal, it'll heal and it will. Yes, it's you're so right. I, I guess a lot of people must come to you for advice and they're looking for that one thing that they can say that you can say to them that will change their perspective and help them, you know, just glide through life. But I don't know if this is something you experienced. Um, but I, I have just one child. And when I when he was born, I had a very, very hard time adjusting to motherhood. I I really wasn't expecting it to be as challenging as it was. And I really experienced a lot of anxiety and so much went along along with that, you know, physically, hormonally, but also just the expectation versus the reality. And I was really hard on myself. You know, people were saying, you're like, is this this not the happiest time of your life? And I was like, oh my God, I just feel like I'm barely treading water. (laughs) I really struggled. And I remember coming across this idea of, matrescence and becoming a mother which is like similar to adolescence where it's actually like this whole process that a woman goes through and how feeling because I I didn't know which way it was up or down I felt so uncertain and I thought all of this would come so naturally to me that you know we're all here to procreate having a baby and becoming a mother is something you just step into with ease and it really wasn't for me but I remember realizing or reading that actually not having the answers and being really uncertain and really doubting yourself was not only okay, but it was actually kind of part of the process that we're all right. trying to get to this point where we have all the ducks in the row or have it figured out. And they, people will probably look to you to tell them how to put the ducks in the row. But you kind of have to let it life get messy there so that you can feel untethered, I think. Otherwise, because you, you, you can't just take it from someone else, you have to kind of go through it. What do you think? That's what I call living it through. 
you know, if we say, well, just get over it, it's what you're talking about. You thought you would just jump into motherhood and be a mother. Well, uh, it doesn't happen that way very often, <laughs> you know, but some mothers are born to be mothers. I mean, they, they come into this life and motherhood is their 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 it's their core issue. They're, they're why they're here. Mm-hmm. And so they come in and they know it. And so they have, they step right in and, and, and it's, you know, this is what it is. Others, I came in knowing I had to be a doctor. And, uh, but there were so much other things, so many other things that I had watched my mother as she had her children and so on. I watched her take care of these Indian women out in the villages in ways that was um, huge. I mean, they didn't have anything in the way of equipment. They had a tent with some medications and things in them. But basically, my parents, it was their love of the people and the work that they were doing with the people that I felt was so essential in the whole field of medicine. And I thought that's what healing was all about. And so it was, um, for me, uh, learning about the, uh, the very fact that love is the healer in medicine was the thing that I had to get into my understanding of what it was while I was practicing medicine. And um, the, when I was in medical school, the, the uh, dean sent me to the psychiatrist twice. Wow. Because, <laughs> yeah, because I was looking for that one thing, that, 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 that healing aspect. And medicine was talking about killing and uh, killing more. A, a disease was a war on disease and pain, and I understood that that had to be part of what we were doing. But I knew that was not all that was. I knew that just killing the disease or getting rid, having patients get rid of the disease or the pain, wasn't the answer to what I was looking for. Mm. And I was looking for what it was that does the actual healing within the person when they heal from a disease, because a lot of people don't heal from diseases. Franklin Roosevelt had post-polio syndrome all his life, and he was our president, you know. So I, I like working with people who have chronic illnesses that they will never get over. Because that is their lesson this time. Mm-hmm. You know, it's that issue is what is this teaching me? What is this body teaching me? What is this particular thing in life teaching me? And learning from that as we live through it. And don't, don't just ju- try to jump over it. Because you can't jump over it. It won't, it, it doesn't go away. No, absolutely not. Take me back to when you started out as 
um, a physician and you came up against all these different roadblocks. And I mean, it's still pretty hard for women in boardrooms these days. But back then you had people who just flat out refused to be treated by a woman. Was what was that even like? I mean, did you did you <laughs> feel like just oh, what's the point? I should just give up, or were you? Or did you feel so called to fulfill this this purpose? You don't. You, you you can't give up when when somebody, you know, in my experience, when we moved to Wellsville, this little town on the Ohio River, uh, nine thousand people in this town, never seen a woman doctor. I would, when we first started, I'd go into like this, I went into this home and this one woman who was in her 70s, she had an obvious appendicitis. I examined, she let me examine her, you know, and I said, well, I'll make the arrangement. I'll call the hospital, make the arrangements and uh, get you in. We'll take care of this. She started yelling at me and saying, you woman, you go back to your babies. And da, 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 da. So I called my husband and I said, you know, here's what we got. So he came in, did the same thing I did and put her in the hospital. But it took several years until they began, you know, people who had never, I was supposed to be a mother. I was supposed to be a teacher. I was supposed to be a nurse. I was supposed to be whatever, but not a doctor. However, two years after uh, we had started there, my husband was called back into the service in, uh, during the Korean War. And I was left alone there. And the town was left with me. You know, they, they, they either dealt with me or they didn't. But if they didn't, they were sick. And they what are they going to do? So they dealt with me, it got to the point where when I was sick, because I was just so worn out and everything, and I got mumps from my children and so on, I was in the hospital. Patients were coming up the back steps to consult with me. My friends, the doctors, had to take me to their own home and hook the IV up with their curtain rod so that I could get away from the patient. You see, it's it's as people grew grew into it and understood who I was and accepted me, then it, it was a whole turnaround. But that, you know, uh, it's hard. There's yeah. no sense of getting mad at it, except sometimes there is. <laughs> sometimes you have to just stand up to uh, things because I was um, I was called up in front of the uh, Maricopa County Medical Association several times because of what I was doing in the way of looking for for other um, for alternative ways of working with people that I well I was just doing different things yeah the more holistic side of things yeah right and we'd started the American Holistic Medical Association and all of that anyway so that the I would be called up in front of the and have to uh, explain what it was that I was doing. So this one day I was called up in front of the, uh, the committee that, uh, of the, well, and there I was. 
And they were telling me how I was so wrong in doing everything I was doing. And I was trying to explain what I was doing. My lawyer was sitting beside me. So they finally um, reprimanded me and gave me my reprimand. And I took it and had my uh, my keys in my hand. And it was a, a big key case. And I walked out and... This one doctor comes up to me and he says to me, now let me tell you something, honey. Well, that just pushed a button in me and I turned around to him and I I had my fist like this. and I said, you will not call me honey. Yes. (laughs) I said, I'm your peer age-wise and professionally and you will not call me honey. Well, he's going down. But I turned around and looked at my lawyer who was leaning up against the wall laughing. He was so, he was just laughing. And when I got up to the office and I told my daughter what I'd done, oh, she said, Mom, you didn't. And I said, yes, I did. He had no business. Three years later, I was called up again. And this same doctor came up to me with all the respect in the world. So there are times when you have to, you know, certain buttons are pushed and you have to stand up for things. But otherwise, you really have to, that stuff is just a lot of foolishness and you have to let it go. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Life is full of awesome what-ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Something that must have been something you felt was, you know, all of your women, all your female peers were all at home, homemakers, mothers. It was so unusual for the time for you to be pursuing this career um how did it feel like did you find yourself comparing yourself to other women or feeling judged by them because of the choice you made to have a life outside of your family depended on the woman you know Mm -hmm. some women were jealous of me I had women say to me um well you would never understand you've always had it so easy and I'd have to say, honey, if you only knew, you know, but it was the um, the individual person trying to um, put 
their life in contact with my life, you know, as what they could understand about who and what I was so that they could deal with it. Because within each one of us is that ability to heal ourselves and the necessity to heal. Like, for instance, my oldest son is a retired orthopedic surgeon. And when he'd finished his um, training, he came through Phoenix. He was going down to Del Rio, Texas to start his practice. And he said, Mom, I'm real scared. He said, I'm going to go into the world. I'm going to have people's lives in my hands. I don't know if I can handle that. And I said, well, Carl, if you think you're the one that does the healing, you have a right to be scared. Mm -hmm. But if you can understand that this profession of orthopedics that you have spent all this time learning is so important for people to heal if they have those issues that need orthopedic work. And so that you do your job to the best of your ability and then you support the physician within the patient who becomes your colleague as they do their own healing. Because you can't heal another person. You can't, it's not, you do what you do so that they can then heal themselves. But as far as, um, you know, you give them the, the work to do and you tell them what to do, but they're the ones that have to choose to do it. I so agree with what you say there. You know, you obviously have to take the medical interventions that you need or whether it was orthopedics or whatever, but your mindset matters so much to you getting over something, especially when it comes to anxiety. I think there's a lot of people, and I mean, you've probably come across this, where if they're not getting somewhere, there's probably a reticence. There, there's almost a fear of going beyond something they've become so familiar with. Like, I think people can get very comfortable in discomfort and it can become all you know. Um, and like for anxiety, which is, you know, my focus, a lot of people don't know who they are without it or don't know how to be without it. So while you might say, here's the 10 things you can do to to get to a point where it's not part of your life anymore. That's kind of a scary thought for some people. Do you do you see that? Sure, sure. I mean, you can point out things to people and they can take it or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if they take it in and do it and it works, then they'll be telling everybody else about it or they won't. But that's the, you know, the, that their option is. So it's that kind of thing that life can't, if you get, if um, life and love are integral aspects of each other, uh, if you try to, to do something without love and you think it's going to do the healing, I it doesn't do what it can do or what the, because love is healing. Love is the great healer. I I have five L's that I, I think are are essential to understanding the basic concepts of, of, of holistic medicine really or living medicine. Anyway, 
The first one is life. Life is like a seed in the in the pyramid that's been there for 5,000 years. It doesn't do anything. It's got all the energy of the universe within its shell, but it do, can't do anything until water and sunlight and caring come to it, which is love, the essence of being cared for. Then its shell cracks open and the seed can boss do whatever it needs to do. So life and love are integral parts of each other. You can't really do real healing without have some aspect of love there. The, the L and the O of uh, those two words are the same the words are the same but the 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 l stands up straight the o moves down it's the masculine and the feminine it's the ability to have this awareness of the inner parts of ourselves and then healing happens so life and love are integral parts of each other the third one is laughter mm. laughter without love is cruel it's cold it's hard it's nasty but laughter with love is happiness and joy the th the third one is labor labor without love is drudgery it's what you found out when you had a child you know all of a sudden all this stuff that you had thought you know was so hard to do so it's drudgery without love. But, but when you realize the love that you had for this child, you moved forward and love then becomes bliss. Because then you, you, the joy that you get out of this child is so amazing. But the, the singer sings because of the love that they have for the, for what it is. You know, it's, it's that, the, no matter how hard it is for a painter to paint, they keep on going because they love to paint. It's the the uh, actual process becomes their bliss. And the fifth one is um, is um, fifth fifth L is listening. <laughs> <laughs> you know. Words fly out. Anyway, listening is the fifth one. Listening without love is empty sound. But listening with love is understanding. Yeah. For me, these five L's helped us sort of put the emotions and the uh, energies that we have within our own being in some kind of sense for me. Do you remember getting to a point where you were aware that you fully loved yourself? Because I think it's a lot easier to love other people. And I think we can get very stuck if we don't love ourselves. But I think it's probably one of the greatest challenges of life so far for me is, is that kind of level of self-acceptance. Self and I think certainly for me growing up in the 90s and the early 2000s, 
there was a real culture of like tough love and real self-criticism and like, you know, that would be kind of motivating to be like, no, you should have done better and be tougher. And only in recent years am I trying to make space for like being really, really kind to myself. But it's so like I could lavish a best friend with all these kind words and then like be so harsh to myself. How do you practice loving yourself? And was it always easy for you? <laughs> no, it's really hard because my first, uh, for when I was a little child, when we lived in the jungles and life was bliss. I mean, that was just wonderful. But when I started school, it was a disaster. I couldn't read. I couldn't, you know, I we call it dyslexia now. But at that time, the n- numbers jumped all over the page and, and the letters, they wouldn't st- hold still. I absolutely could not read. I couldn't write a sentence. I was a class dummy. I repeated first grade twice because I couldn't, I couldn't do it. And, and uh, now at home, it was a t- completely different thing. My mother understood what was going. She didn't understand what it was, but she understood what was happening with me and had, gave me um, the kind of love and understanding that allowed me to do, to understand that I, that I had that within me but in school, I didn't. I was—I really was for two years the the class dummy, and um, and then you—you you could start to believe that about yourself. Yes, I—I I, I absolutely, I—I I really didn't understand. Now, this is the truth. I didn't understand that I had to. I was talking about it, but understanding at the fifth L, I didn't understand that importance of loving myself until I was 93, loving my voice. I mean, I loved myself. I understood that because I'd learned that from the, my family. But loving my voice, and and I'd written books, but I still ha- could not really um, say to myself, yeah, well, that's that's your voice. Until I had a dream. Now, I... I, I really understand the importance of dreams. And I've worked with my patients with this for years. But this dream was, it was a Sunday morning. And um, uh, in the dream, I woke up with, I was singing and I was laughing at the same time. And what I saw as as my dream was, fading, you know, you in and out of the dream space. I saw myself as nine-year-old Gladys in the in the camp, in the tent in the jungles of India, peeking out of the flap because I knew that I wanted to do something that we weren't allowed to do in our family. And if my brother was out there and saw me, he would tattle on me and I'd be in trouble, okay? So I'm looking, making sure he's not there. He's not there. So I ran fast as I could to to the mango tree and climbed clear up to the top. And I was sitting up at the top because I was singing. I was singing songs that I wanted to sing, Caterpillar song, any old song. In our family, 
we were not, this was a Sunday morning and I knew it. We were not allowed to sing anything but pudgeons or hymns on Sunday mornings. And I did, I thought as a nine year old, I thought that was very stupid and I wanted to sing these <laughs> songs. So I'm at the top of the tree and I'm singing because I thought nobody could hear me and I'm up here doing it. But then I look over my shoulder and Jesus is up in the tree with me. And I look over to Jesus and I say, uh, Jesus loves the little children, right? And he's laughing. He's just really, really laughing. And he says, yes. So I went back to my singing. And then I got to thinking, you know, did he really say that was okay? <laughs> and I begin to doubt. And I look back and I say, I'm still a little children, right? And he says, yes. And I go on singing. And I woke up. And I realized that through all the years, I had been so damaged. It's called ambiguous loss. You have this damage of your own persona that you were, the, you know, I was a dumbbell. You uh, couldn't say it, do things you, that you wanted to do. Your voice had no, you know, the rest of the whole scenario. And Jesus was telling me that my voice was okay. Wow. And so from I was 93 years old at that point. So at that point, I began saying, when people would say, what you told me or what you said to me did such and such, I was able to say thank you and not try to diminish what I had said by deflecting it to somebody else, which then I realized was really denying it. Wow. So what would you say to that nine-year-old girl now if you were if you had a time travel machine? Thank God. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I would say thank God that uh, that I s saw at this at that age the importance of what I was trying to tell myself when I was 9 years old. Mm. You know, that maybe um, it was maybe at that point, I wasn't supposed to uh, share it with people on Sunday mornings, you know, I mean, you know, the kind of, but my voice was important. A lot of people have anxiety around their health and at the root of it is a fear of life being cut short. And if it's not about health, there's a fear of getting older and, you know, we're all doing taking these anti-aging skincare serums and, and doing everything we can to, to chase youth and you, you've lived already to an age that a lot of people can only dream of getting to how does that anxiety about getting older and that anxiety around health and being in control of your well-being how does that change actually as you actually get to these later years in life well I feel like it's it's really foolish. The important thing is to love your life and live your life to the fullest. I mean, if you're spending so much time being afraid of what you're going to be like when you're five years older or 10 years older or something, what have you accomplished? 
you know, it's it's a uh, something that I, I call a, a Kuchpurwani. My mother had the most amazing way of um, dealing with issues that really did not have a lot of weight to them. They, they were just something that my sister and I were 90 years old when we were sitting and talking to each other one day and we'd do something and we'd say and we'd say something and we'd take it our head like this and just drop it down and all of a sudden both of us at the same time said why do we do that <laughs> and we both said to each other who did that and we said mama did it okay well what did she she said something when that and she'd say, oh, Kuchparwani. And Kuchparwani in Hindustani means, oh, it doesn't matter. So what we learned from, as we were talking, my sister and I were talking to each other, was we learned that there are certain things in life, a lot of things in life, that come to you like somebody says something mean to you. And you take it in and you hang on to that. Like I was a dumbbell in my class. I hung on that to that till I was 93, you know. It was that you take it in and yet it it's it's just it's nothing. It's kuchpurwane. It doesn't matter. If they think I'm a dumbbell, that's their problem, not mine. When I until I understand <laughs> that it's just and I, and I actually can let it go. So in this book, I, I, I talk about this actual process of moving your hands in such a way that you can take these stuck things that are in so deep within you that you, you just, you know, you've lived with them all this time. You think it's part of yourself, but it really doesn't matter. It's just, you can let it go. It's a Tai Chi movement even. Wow. So it's that kind of uh, allowing yourself to grow into age, not sort of medicate yourself into some place or dream into or well the dreaming is, is I'll, that's okay if it's an actual uh, way in which you're working towards getting into some aspect of of life that you've wanted to do you know like for instance if a person always wanted to play um the piano okay okay and they but they've been too busy with their career and all that kind of stuff and then they retire but they could start playing the piano you know i mean it's it's something that if you can let yourself actually grasp let go of something that doesn't matter it just kuchpurwani. It doesn't matter, and get hold of something that does, and take that in and let that grow and become. Yeah, it's a lot better than facial cream. <laughs> <laughs> How did you feel waking up on your most recent birthday? Did you, you know, in your nineties, did you think that you would get to that age? Like, this what? What do you wake up thinking on that day? Uh, I, I saw so I'm 102, all right? What I did for that birthday party 
because we had a bunch of people over. I bought a tricycle and I rode into on the stage on that tricycle. I had two of my sons part a carton, curtain and I rode onto the stage on that tricycle and I stopped the tricycle and I did a little speech because I wanted the, my audience to know that the tricycle is a perfect example of holistic medicine. You start out with two wheels and they're great. You know, they're, they, they're standing there by themselves. But and in holistic medicine, body and mind are huge. I mean, when when we started the Holistic Medical Association, that's it, what all of medicine was focusing on was your body and mind, with no concept of what the spirit was could do. But they the body and mind were connected by this strong uh, frame. So the tricycle wheels have this one really strong frame, and they're there. They can stand together and be uh, there, be who they are. But they can't do anything more until you put another wheel on in front, and that's the third wheel, which is the spirit. So holistic medicine is the combining of the two back wheels with the front wheel so that you have some direction and some way of moving. However, even those three can't do anything until a person gets on the seat and grabs the steering and the handlebars. So that was my message to my audience was that, so I'm here with the tricycle because I can direct this tricycle anywhere I want to and it can take me there. Mm -hmm. And so I'm 102. You know, it's, it's the acceptance of who and what you are and how you can portray it in a way that it makes sense. Absolutely. I have to ask you about meeting Mahatma Gandhi. Well, uh, you know, I when I was 10 years old, our family was moving from India to the States because my per, per, my parents had a furlough every seven and a half years. So we were in the train coming out uh, of just slowing down into a station and I was, we were in the third class compartment and I had my face up against the window because there were crowds of people out there. There are always crowds of people in India, but these ones were kind of directed. And in front of them was this little man in a dhoti and a lati, he had a st staff and his garment. And he was going along and people were calling out Dadi, I mean, Gandhiji, Gandhiji. And he stopped right in front of where my window was and reached down and got a flower from a little girl who was handing it up to her, up to him. And as he stood up and looked up, he looked straight into my eyes. And I felt something. Now, I can't explain that to anybody. 
I can't even explain it to myself. I felt a connection that was so real and so um, important to me. Mm-hmm. And so that it was just a momentary, I think this happens to us sometimes. There's a momentary something. Somebody says something, you hear a song or something, and there's that electrical connection that you know is right. So I knew that what Gandhi was doing was important, and I knew that the, the partition stuff was starting and all this. 30 years later, my parents helped Gandhi when the partition of India was ta- was was actually going on, and they would be on the stage with Gandhi and talking to the people. And they worked; they took their medical work into the camps where all the. It was a terrible time when the Mohammedans and Hindus had to change places. It was India was just torn apart. But in this process to of reconstructing and reclaiming its own independence and its own uh, reality, Gandhi was a pivotal factor of that, and my parents were helping him with that. So he gave my mama, my mom, a cashmere shawl, which I have in a closet here, and my dad a potty pot jacket. Uh, 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 um, it was something that jacket. Anyway, um, the idea being that somehow there had been a connection of the way that my parents loved the work that they did in the villages of North India all of those years, which I understood and which Gandhi was making manifest when I looked into his eyes and he looked into mine. I mean, it's some kind of a huge connection that happened. So, you know, these things, they all have meaning. And if you begin to uh, see what's really there, there are huge things that happen to each one of us. Yeah, absolutely. You are a big believer that we do not need to conserve our energy as we get older. We need to just direct it wisely. So how are you directing your energy now? I know you have a 10-year plan. What does the future hold for you? I'm really, really believing (laughs) that living medicine is the important thing of in my life, that I need to live. And so I'm not talk, calling it holistic anymore. I'm calling it living medicine. Okay. And that I envision a village for living medicine, any place in the earth that people want to do this, where the, every, the essence of the people who live there is living a life that is the kind of that what i'm uh which i see as the life that is reaching for our true humanity i et was reaching to go home i think within us is that necessity to keep looking up and 
working towards the what we call our true humanity. So I, the title of my podcast is Owning It and the book, my first book, which the podcast is based on is called Owning It as well. And everything you're saying here seems to fit so nicely with this idea of just owning who you are, wherever you're at, right. whether that's in this moment, struggling with anxiety, which a lot of my listeners are, or trying to carve out a space for yourself in a male dominated world or becoming a mother or getting older. Um, you are or whatever it is yeah, yeah. you are 100% owning it and thank you so much for your wisdom um, the book is widely available now The Well Lived Life and I wish right. all of the success in the world with it um, and I could I could keep you here for hours but I'm sure you're a very busy <laughs> woman with lots to do um, so thank you for your time and yeah, congratulations you. and take care yeah thank you Thank you for allowing me to do this. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love. And be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. The easiest way to access Owning It Real Time is to head to the link in the episode description or episode details, whatever you call them, show notes. You will find the link in there at the top. You can sign up right away for Owning It Real Time and access the full library of 10 situation-specific audio guides that will help you own your anxiety even more than you've ever done before.